Well, good morning, Crossroads. Thank you for the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. Let's begin with a very brief review and overview of the book of Colossians that we're studying this summer. Paul likely wrote his letter to the Colossians in response to the false teachings we've been studying in chapter 2. To counteract these false teachings, Paul explains the person and work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul goes on to give practical instruction about how Christians should live their lives and treat other people. In Colossians 2, 20 through 23, which is today's passage, Paul focuses on man-made rules and Jewish tradition and their inability to bring the change of heart needed to break the power of sin in our lives. In a larger sense, today's passage addresses the issue of how do we deal with our inadequacies before a perfectly righteous God? How do we admit our failures without losing hope of salvation? Well, a few years ago, we undertook a bathroom remodel project. And as part of that, I mail-ordered some cabinets. They came in. I put them together and put them up. And matching trim came with the cabinets. So I started trimming out the upper section of them, then the lower section where it was visible. And I ended with the trim that was underneath the overhanging lower cabinets along the baseboard. Well, as I was about to put on the last piece of trim, I realized I was going to come up about three inches short. So I talked with my wife, Chris, and we decided it's going to be pretty hard to match that perfectly. So let's just leave it for now, and we'd get back to it someday. Well, as you can imagine, the years went by, and as I would walk by that gap in the trim, it would bother me a little bit, because I'd think about it, and I'd think, that's unfinished. That's not according to design. Or even, that's wrong. Even though, in order to see this gap, you had to be down on your hands and knees and looking at just the right angle... And likely, nobody else in the world knew about it until this morning. <laughs> now you're in on the secret. But likewise, we all have areas of our lives where there is something unfinished. Something that is not according to design or plan. Even something that is just plain wrong. Some of those things are glaring and obvious to everyone around us. And some of those things, we're the only one in the world who knows about them. But God knows all of our insufficiencies. So how do we face a perfectly righteous God as sinful human beings? How do we compensate for our imperfections 
in the eyes of God. In Colossians 2, 20 through 23, Paul tells us some ways that the Colossians were trying to compensate for their sins by practicing legalism and asceticism. But Paul teaches us that these will never work to please God or to change our sinful hearts. So let's look at our text for today, which is Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Starting in verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This morning I'll be sharing thoughts with you, primarily those from John Piper, Sinclair Ferguson, R.C. Sproul, Matthew Henry, and Stephen Cole. This morning we'll continue where Aaron left off last week, looking into the ideas of legalism and asceticism and why they appeal to our fallen human nature, but also why they destroy God's joy and peace in our lives and are helpless to stop sin. Finally, we'll look at ways to spot legalism and asceticism creeping into our thinking and the teaching of the church and replace them with the joy of knowing the sufficiency of Christ. So let's take a look at verse 20 then. The first part of it, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. The interpretation of the phrase elemental spirits of the world is difficult, but the best meaning seems to be that of a rules-based approach to God where following certain rules wins us God's favor. Paul used the term this way in Galatians 4, verses 3 and 9. Let's take a look at Galatians 4, 9 in context, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain." Here the elementary principles of the world represent the rules-based approach to God by observing Jewish ritual feasts and holy days. Later in Colossians 2.21, Paul refers to Jewish cleanliness and dietary laws as elementary principles of the world that Aaron spoke about last week. In Galatians 4.9, Paul points out to the Galatians that they are not mere victims of these practices, but they wanted to return to slavery in them, like the Israelites wanted to return to Egypt after they were freed from their slavery. Looking back then at Colossians 
the first phrase, if you died to, the preposition to used literally means that you died from the law. That is, you are separated from the law's jurisdiction so that it no longer condemns you. Continuing on in 20 through 23, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Legalism is an attempt to please God through human achievement. Asceticism is an attempt to please God through self-denial or self-punishment. Asceticism involves abandoning sensual pleasures and leading an abstinent lifestyle in the pursuit of redemption, salvation, or spirituality. Both legalism and asceticism are outside-in philosophies of cleansing the body and the soul. They say that if your actions appear to be holy, then you are holy through and through. Pagan worship often involved physical self-abuse, with an extreme example being the priests of Baal in the showdown with Elijah in 1 Kings 18 that Mark preached about recently. The priests slashed themselves until blood gushed out of them as they tried in vain to coerce Baal into consuming the sacrificial bull with fire. A more subtle form of asceticism is the thought that we can coerce God by acts of self-sacrifice by saying things such as, God, I will stop this bad habit if you do this for me. Or, God, I will go without my favorite food for a year if you will do this for me. Or even like our brother Martin Luther, God, I will become a monk if you save me from this violent storm. But the problem with this thinking is that we cannot coerce God by our acts of self-sacrifice. If we could, He wouldn't be the God of the Bible. So let's look at what was happening with the Colossians and why this teaching was needed from Paul. The Colossian church faced teachers who developed a heresy that combined elements of Judaism in conformance with the ceremonial law and Christianity that Paul was teaching, and paganism in the form of asceticism or physical abuse of their own bodies. These teachers taught that their rules were the only way to be part of the Colossian church and to enjoy fellowship with God. Under the Jewish law, a person was deemed ceremonially unclean, if they had touched a dead body or anything offered to an idol, or if they had eaten forbidden foods such as pork. Maybe the Colossians' goal was to help people deny sin and live lives of righteousness 
But as Paul writes in verse 23, these practices are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So why did the Colossians fall into this syncretism of combining various religious practices? Maybe they thought that by observing the Jewish ceremonial law, along with the gospel of Christ and pagan asceticism, that they would have their bases covered, whatever the truth turned out to be. But as Paul warns, this syncretism is not faith in God, but is instead faith in ourselves. And it is not God's desire for our lives. Well, then why might we today want to practice legalism and asceticism? Because trying to earn the favor of other people by our works is part of our everyday experience. And we believe we can earn God's favor like we earn people's favor. But God knows our every action and our every thought. And we cannot hide our sins from Him. We also suffer from an extra credit mentality trying to add extra good works to make up for our sins. But God doesn't take extra credit. He doesn't grade on a curve. God grades pass-fail. Our attempts at extra credit don't cover our sins. Even more damaging to our souls, attempting extra credit fuels our pride and our contempt for other people who don't measure up to our standard. Trying to make up for their sins is likely why the Colossians practiced legalism and asceticism and why we continue to practice them today. The Colossian situation was one of Jewish heritage and conformance to the Jewish ceremonial law. There was strong pressure in Jewish society to obey the ceremonial law. The Pharisees, even as we read about this morning, were experts at making a show of outward obedience to the law, including the elaborate sacrificial system for the covering of sins, purification rituals, feasts and holy day observances, as well as dietary regulations that were never meant to be eternal but to show the Israelites that they couldn't even keep the comparatively easy laws designed to show their separation from the world around them. The understanding of the new covenant in Christ's blood is that these laws from the old covenant and the Jews' inability to obey them were intended to drive them to faith in Christ, who breaks our sin, our slavery to sin, and makes us holy. The new covenant in Christ fulfilled what were only shadows in the old covenant. When the temple veil was cut in two at the moment of Christ's death, the ceremonial law lost its power and its meaning as a way for sinful man to face our perfect God. And also at the moment of Christ's death, the complete sufficiency of Christ for our salvation was revealed. This was a time of transition for the Colossians and the Jewish people 
who became Christians from the externally focused Jewish ceremonial laws and the pagan rules to appease the gods to an internal, heart-focused gospel Christianity. The transition was not an easy one for the Colossians and in many ways isn't easy for us yet today. Again, looking at verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism is self-inflicted punishment. By it, we trick ourselves into thinking we are wise and humble before God. But Paul is arguing against this misguided human philosophy. However, we need to be careful to understand that Paul is not arguing against the need to keep God's moral law. Paul condemns asceticism. But what's the difference between the asceticism that Paul condemns in his letter to the Colossians and biblical self-denial or self-discipline which Paul requires of himself and other Christians? Some scripture verses that call for self-discipline include Paul saying he is disciplined in his body and makes it his slave in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He instructed Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus in 2 Timothy 2.3 and to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness in 1 Timothy 4.7. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.23. And Jesus said that self-denial is an essential requirement for following him in Matthew 16:24. The difference between asceticism and biblical self-discipline is that biblical self-discipline is obedience to what God commands, and asceticism is what men add to God's commands. Let's look at a few contrasts between asceticism and biblical self-discipline. First, asceticism sees the body as evil to be totally suppressed, denied, and physically abused. Biblical self-discipline sees the body as good but needing control. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, that as Christians, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need to take care of our bodies and to glorify God with them. To do this, we need to exercise control over what we eat and what we drink, over harmful substances we might put into our bodies, as well as over malicious, lustful, and covetous impulses. Second, asceticism is submitting my body to my will. Biblical self-discipline is submitting my whole life to God's will. The ascetic operates on willpower. His goal is to bring his body under the control of his mind, but Christian self-denial has a higher aim, namely to glorify Jesus Christ and bring my whole being into submission to him. It is to renounce my control of my life and give that control willingly to Christ. 
Third, asceticism labels all material things as evil. Biblical self-discipline properly uses and enjoys the things of the world. Ascetics cannot enjoy material possessions. Paul taught that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy in 1 Timothy 6.17. Countering those who forbade marriage and taught abstaining from certain foods, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Christians can rightly enjoy all of life under the Lordship of Christ, including a good meal, the beauty of God's creation, and the joys of faithful marriage. Asceticism views joy and pleasure as wrong. Biblical self-discipline allows for the fullness of joy and pleasure in God. Fourth, asceticism is restrictive. Biblical self-discipline leads to greater freedom. Asceticism emphasizes the things that you cannot do. Don't handle this. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. It leads to a restrictive, repressive kind of life. But biblical self-discipline opens a life of liberty for the believer. Let's then look at Christian liberty that we all enjoy under Christ. Christians are freed by Christ from the ritual observances of the Jewish ceremonial law and are delivered from that yoke of bondage which God himself laid on his chosen people. Christ's sacrifice, which is the true mechanism for forgiveness of sin, replaced the animal sacrifices and purity rules and cleansing ceremonies of the old covenant. In Galatians 5.1, Paul tells us, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And Romans 14.7 tells us, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Romans 4.20 says, Do not, for the sake of food, Destroy the work of the Lord. Everything is indeed clean. Christians are not bound by the Jewish ceremonial law. Likewise, Christians are not bound to extra-biblical rules invented by men. In Mark 7, the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands according to the traditional but man-made cleansing ceremony. Jesus corrected the Pharisees in Mark 7, 7, saying, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And in Mark 7, 9, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. We have our modern equivalent to the Pharisees and their man-made laws. John Piper spoke about the big five of fundamentalism. No dancing, no drinking, no smoking, no gambling, and no theater going. Piper observed that people who adopted this separated life for themselves and imposed it on others 
often became Pharisaic and proud of their separation. We must be careful to distinguish between traditions of man and the commandments of God. Like the Pharisees, following overly restrictive rules makes a person look holy to other people, but this kind of rule following brings only false humility in reference to external appearances, but not true humility of the heart. Colossians 2.22 tells us that these human religious rules lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they are incapable of transforming the human heart. The implication of these verses is that rules about food and drink and extra-biblical restrictions do not apply to us if we have died with Christ and are freed from the powers of this world. The cross ended the rules-keeping approach to God. Next then, legalism, grace, and gratitude. Legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. The effective legalist appears on the outside to be a very moral person. The problem lies in their believing that their obedience earns God's favor and sets them above other people. The second meaning of legalism, which applies to other people in the legalist's life, is this, adding extra-biblical requirements as the basis for full participation in the local church. The first meaning of legalism applies to the actions of the legalist, and the second meaning of legalism applies to everyone else in the legalist's world. In the first type of legalism, we use our own power to make ourselves moral. In the second type, we use our own power to make other people in the church moral. In the first case, we fail to rely on the power of God for our own sanctification. And in the second case, we fail to rely on the power of God for the sanctification of others. What unites these two forms of legalism at the root is unbelief. Unbelief in regard to ourselves, that it is God who works to will and to do His good pleasure in us, as Philippians 2.12 says. And unbelief in relation to others, that God will make His will known to them and incline them to do it, as it says in Philippians 3.15. Let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul confidently entrusts the purification of the church to God. But our enemy Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He makes sin look like wisdom and holiness. An example of this is how we might perceive legalism compared to something like alcoholism and others. Legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like a disease. 
Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in the church. Legalists love to hear their morality praised in church. The point of this illustration is to be on your guard for the subtle sin of legalism. And don't mistake it for a virtue. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God wants our hearts, not just our outward behavior. We've seen that we as Christians are made free from the obligation of the Jewish ceremonial law and laws of human religions. But does that mean that we are free to live any way we wish? Romans 6.12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. God wants us to obey His commandments, and He desires that we are made more like Christ every day. How do we obey Romans 6.12 and free Flee from sin if legalism and asceticism and other superficial approaches cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. Paul follows quickly with the answer. Two verses later in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Asceticism and legalism don't break the power of sin in our lives. Knowing we are living under grace, not under the law, causes us to be thankful to God for rescuing us. This gratitude combined with the Holy Spirit's indwelling power are the key to ending the reign of sin in our lives. Only a changed heart that is overflowing with gratitude works to conquer the power of sin and bring joyful obedience to God's law. R.C. Sproul spoke of having a professor in graduate school. One of the phrases that his professor told him was, the essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. God's grace alone is responsible for our salvation. Our actions don't save us. Our response to God's graciousness is gratitude, and that gratitude motivates us to follow God's commandments. This is the truth and substance of gospel Christianity. But the legalist instead says, the essence of Christian theology is partly or completely my good works. And the essence of Christian ethics is obligation to earn my salvation. The legalist takes upon himself a heavy burden. 
that squeezes out joy and will eventually crush him. The gospel frees us to admit our sins and faults to God and to other people. The legalist cannot admit his faults because he believes this will disqualify him for salvation. The biblical Christian admits his faults as falling short of God's standard and praises God for his forgiveness by his grace and desires to follow the law out of gratitude for what God has done for him. The motive behind biblical self-discipline is not to gain God's favor, but to be pleasing to God because he loved me and he died for me. God certainly cares about our following his commandments, but the same pattern and expectation of the new covenant was also found in the old covenant. In God's giving of the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gives the first commandment in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God didn't start his giving of the Ten Commandments with the first commandment. He started with a statement of who he is and what he has done. God started with a statement of his unmistakable grace to his chosen people. God pointed out that the Israelites were helpless to free themselves from the Egyptians, just as we are helpless to free ourselves from the power of sin. God showed his grace in saving the Israelites as he saves his children today, because the essence of Christian theology is grace. Once God established grace as the basis of the covenant between him and his chosen people, then he proceeded to give the law. Because the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. God wants our gratitude to motivate our obedience, not our guilt and not our shame and not our self-righteous pride. We're tempted to believe that sin is primarily an external problem outside of us, our actions and behaviors. Therefore, if we can deprive ourselves of certain bodily pleasures, we can fool ourselves into thinking we are advancing in holiness. Just before the Protestant Reformation, church teaching said the holiest people were the monks and nuns because they took vows of celibacy and followed mandatory fasts and rigid rules. If sin is only an external problem, then controlling our words, our diets, our bodies in every external way is the key to conquering sin. However, stopping the external signs of sin doesn't stop the sin that's in our hearts. Stopping malicious actions doesn't stop malicious thoughts. Stopping lustful actions doesn't stop lustful thoughts. Stopping covetous actions does not stop covetous thoughts. It's not what enters us by handling or tasting or touching that defiles us, 
but our hearts within us defile us, as it says in Matthew fifteen eleven. In our hearts is where the source of cleansing must be applied, or there will be no defeating of sin. Sadly, many people equate Christianity with legalism. They equate a truly changed heart of a Christian to the guilt and pride-driven external obedience to God's law. If Christianity and legalism were the same, there would be no good news in Christ, no gospel, no joy, no peace, no hope, no assurance of salvation. But we are all gathered to worship God today because legalism has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And that fact is worth celebrating and praising the one who set us free from the oppressive and embittering burden of legalism. Let's look at some applications then. How do we avoid falling into the trap the false teachers and the Colossians struggled with? How do we apply this today? Sinclair Ferguson gives this advice. When you hear a powerful teacher ask these three questions, number one, who is being exalted, the speaker or Christ? Number two, what is not being said? What is said may be true, but must convey the truth of the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. And number three, what is the effect of the teacher's teaching? The speaker is puffed up, or the hearers are puffed up, or the body of Christ is built up. One recent survey found the average time to get your body ready for the day is 41 minutes. What's the average time taken to get our soul ready for the day? So much of our modern man-made religion is how to be successful, beautiful people. Not how to be people devoted to Christ. Paul's advice to the Colossians should cause us to ask these questions of the teaching that we hear. Number one, does this teaching allow me to overcome sin or simply to disguise it? Number two, does this teaching serve to build up the fellowship of the church or to destroy it? Number three, does this teaching enslave me to the person who teaches it? And number four, does it focus on man-made regulations rather than the glory and honor of Christ? We are created to glorify God. Don't settle for a lower calling of glorifying man at the cost of glorifying God. Jonathan Edwards is credited with the phrase, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. If we contributed anything to our salvation, then there would be some doubt as to whether that contribution was sufficient. That would cause the loss of our peace and security in Christ. Asceticism and legalism don't bring peace and comfort, but bring guilt and doubt. Only resting completely in Christ and enjoying His freedom brings peace, which passes understanding, 
And the joy of knowing nothing can defeat God's plan for us. Returning back to the story about the cabinet trim, Chris and I discussed the unfinished gap in the trim, and we decided to leave it as a reminder that God's perfect design includes our imperfections. That gap in the trim reminds us that our peace and our security come from Christ's work and not our own. The answer to the question, how do we compensate for our imperfections in the eyes of God, is that we can't do it. But Christ can. He's the only one who can, and He has already done it for us. Paul started this passage in Colossians with the words, If with Christ you died... So in closing, I ask you, have you died with Christ? Have you died to asceticism and legalism? Have you died to finding lasting peace and joy and earning favor in the eyes of God? If you have died with Christ to these worldly philosophies and the disappointments and the bitterness that they bring, then you are alive with Christ and will enjoy profound peace, joy, and hope in the all-sufficient power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our inadequacies torment our soul, and the deserved wrath of God weighs heavy upon us. This causes our striving, but our striving does not quench the torment. Freedom is found in Christ alone. The song in Christ Alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend contains the words, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. God's wrath was not partially satisfied, not waiting for us to do our part through legalism or asceticism. God's wrath was completely and eternally satisfied at the cross. And what is the result in our hearts? Our fears are stilled and our strivings cease. Partly in the here and now, and completely and eternally in our heavenly home. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we confess with shame that we are tempted to believe something less than the truth of your gracious free gift of salvation in the gospel. Lord, equip us with your belt of truth and the breastplate of your righteousness in our battles against the evil one. Help us to fix our hearts and minds and wills on Christ, that he is our all in all, and we may live for his glory. In the name of Christ, our righteousness, we pray. Amen.